Sometimes if you want to find true horror, you only have to look at humans. For centuries, they have inflicted terrible cruelty and pain on their fellow species. Not necessarily because they are psychopaths or sadists, but simply because they believe in an ideology that dehumanizes their victims, whether that is through war or a strong belief in injustice, religion or immorality. The grim truth is that almost anyone is capable of committing staggering atrocities given the right circumstances. So, from the distressing story behind the ominous-looking cliff in the thumbnail, to a tale of cannibalism, here are five truly disturbing horror stories you will not believe are real. But before we begin, we'd like to do a quick Patreon plug, which you can skip if you're not interested, but you wouldn't believe how much content you're missing out on. Our two most recent Murderous Minds and Minds of Madness documentaries were on Ricardo Lopez and the Truck Stop Killer, and we'll be uploading two new documentaries this month over there. If you want to show your support for the channel and the videos we create, but also get access to all of our documentaries, then head on over to Patreon and check it out. It'll be the best $2 you spent all month, we promise. But we'd like to mention, as has always been policy from the start, if you genuinely cannot afford $2 a month, we offer all of our Patreon exclusive content for free, no questions asked. We understand times are tough, and not everyone can afford or justify it, but still find value and escape in our work. So if you genuinely cannot afford, just drop us an email to patreon at topfives.co.uk to see all of our exclusive Patreon content for free. You don't have to explain your situation to us. You don't even have to write anything in the email. If you're wondering why we don't upload them to YouTube, well, it's because posting on Patreon allows us to talk about topics unfiltered and uncensored, something we cannot do on YouTube. If you're interested, click on the link in the comments section below or in the description to check out our Patreon. And with that out of the way, it's time to hit those lights, sit back, and enjoy. Hawk Terrier was born on May 16, 1947, in Quebec, Canada. He was a highly intelligent child, but dropped out of school at an early age to study and learn the Old Testament of the Bible. He later converted from Catholicism to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Hogg was very charismatic and was good at influencing people, and eventually he convinced an entire group of like-minded people to quit their jobs and form a religious sect he called the Ant Hill Kids, named for their ant-like hard work. Terrio was their self-proclaimed prophet who went by the name Moise. By 1977, Terriol and his followers had formed a commune that was free of sin and stood for equality and unity. They were a doomsday cult whose beliefs were based on the Seventh-day Adventist church. The group made their living by selling baked goods. However, Terriol had developed a drink problem and his behavior became increasingly erratic and abusive. Followers had to abide by extreme rules, which included no contact with their families and no speaking to each other unless he was present. As his drinking got worse, Terrio started punishing his followers in more extreme ways if he thought they didn't appear devoted enough to him, or if any of them wished to leave. These punishments included beatings with belts or hammers, hanging them from the ceiling, plucking hairs from their bodies, and defecating on them. Terriolt also convinced his followers that the world would end in 1979 and instructed the whole commune to relocate into the Canadian wilderness to a mountainside he called Eternal Mountain in San Jockey, 
where he claimed they could all be saved. But when 1979 came and went, he told his followers that time on earth and in God's world was not parallel, and that therefore he'd made a miscalculation. Despite Terry Alt's increasingly cruel and abusive behavior, he still had absolute devotion from his followers, and he took multiple wives and partners, telling them that impregnating all female members was a religious requirement. Eventually, he fathered 26 children. In 1984, the group's 40 members relocated to a site near Burnt River, Ontario. By this time, Terry Alt's punishments were becoming more and more extreme, to the point he made members break their own legs with sledgehammers sit on lit stoves, shoot each other in the shoulders, and eat dead mice, insects, and feces. Sometimes he would ask a follower to prove their loyalty by cutting off another member's toes with wire cutters. His children also suffered horrific abuse. They were sexually abused, howled over fires, and nailed to trees, while other children threw stones at them. Things got so bad that one of Terriel's wives left her newborn child Elisa Lavalie, outside to die in freezing temperatures to keep him away from the abuse. He also started performing unnecessary surgical operations on sick members to demonstrate his healing powers. These surgeries included injecting a 94% ethanol solution into stomachs or performing circumcisions on children and adults without anesthetic. In 1987, authorities were informed of some of the practices at the commune and removed 17 of the children. However, remarkably, Terriel faced no action for his abusive acts. Things would only get worse in 1989, when follower Solange Boylard complained of an upset stomach. Terriel decided to perform another surgery without anesthesia. He laid Solange naked on a table and punched her in the stomach. Then he performed a crude enema with molasses and olive oil before cutting open her stomach and ripping out parts of her intestines with his bare hands. Terriel made another member, Gabrielle Lavallee, stitch her up using a needle and thread and got another woman to shove a tube down her throat and blow in it. Unsurprisingly, Solange died the next day, but Terriel claimed that he had a power of resuscitation and drilled a hole into Solange's skull. Then he had other members, along with himself, ejaculate into the cavity. When Solange did not return to life, her body was buried a short distance from the commune. Gabrielle, who assisted in the operation, had finally had enough. She had endured her own pain. After having blowtorches held to her genitals, eight of her teeth taken out, and a hypodermic needle breaking off in her spine. So she escaped, but for unknown reasons, she returned shortly after, because she could not live without the cult. When she returned, Terriel punished her by cutting off one of her fingers, nailing her hand to a table, and amputating her entire arm. Later, he cut off parts of her breasts and smashed her head in with an axe. After the mutilation, Gabrielle finally fled and alerted the authorities. In 1989, Terriel was arrested for assault and was found guilty for the amputation of Gabrielle's arm. He received a 12-year prison sentence. During his incarceration, he fathered four more children during conjugal visits with female cult members who remained devoted to him. However, further investigations exposed the wider abuse and Solange Boylard's murder, and in 1993, he was sentenced to life imprisonment. In 2011, Terry Old's cellmate sliced him up with a makeshift knife. 
He did not die a prophet as he had envisioned, but rather the heinous criminal he'd become. The Cokeville Miracle There are few things worse in the world than holding children hostage in their school. Even if the kids and teachers survive, the psychological effect on the rest of their lives is enormous. On Friday, May 16, 1986, the unthinkable happened at Cokeville Elementary School in Wyoming, when ex-Cokeville police officer David Young and his wife Doris entered the school wheeling a shopping cart. Inside was an improvised explosive device. David went to the school office, handing out a manifesto entitled Zero Equals Infinity, and announced this is a revolution. Teachers were confused and baffled by Young's nonsensical manifesto. Meanwhile, Doris went from classroom to classroom, luring 136 children, six faculty, nine teachers, and three other adults into a first grade classroom. She convinced them that there was either an emergency, a surprise, or an assembly there. David entered the room with the makeshift bomb trigger attached to his wrist, threatening the group that at any time if he moved his arm, the bomb would explode. He demanded a ransom of $2 million per hostage and an audience with President Ronald Reagan, who he had previously sent a copy of the manifesto. As parents and police gathered outside, inside the teachers did their best to occupy the terrified children with games, prayer, songs and books. But the smell from the leaking gasoline bomb was getting unbearable, so their hostage takers allowed them to open the windows. After a two and a half hour standoff, all parties were getting increasingly agitated. David left the room briefly to use the bathroom and attached the bomb's detonation device to his wife's wrist. Doris, who was as terrified as the hostages, started begging the teachers to calm the restless children. By this time, Doris was experiencing a headache from the escaping gasoline fumes and inadvertently raised her hand to her forehead. This unintentionally activated the trigger mechanism and the bomb exploded, severely injuring Doris and filling the room with black smoke and pockets of fire. David returned to the scene in a panic and shot his wife and a teacher before returning to the bathroom where he shot himself. All the hostages managed to escape, although 79 were later hospitalized with burns and injuries, the majority of which were severe. During the carnage, Doris's burnt body was expelled through an open window and left lying on the front lawn. Luckily, two of the three blasting caps on the bomb failed to detonate. The wires to each had reportedly been cut. Had the bomb functioned fully, the death toll would have been huge. The reason for the wire cuts is still a mystery. When the bomb detonated, the majority of the explosive force was channeled through loose ceiling tiles in the classroom roof. Additionally, the open windows acted as vents and significantly mitigated the explosive power of the bomb. It was later revealed that David Young had initially planned to involve two of his friends and his youngest daughter from his first marriage, but at last minute they all refused to go through with the plan. His daughter reported the incident at the town hall and the two friends were later found handcuffed in a van outside the school. No charges were ever brought against any of them. All told, 79 of the hostages suffered severe injuries, mostly second-degree burns, smoke inhalation, and other injuries from the exploding bomb, and many have been left with lifelong psychological scars. Only David and Doris were killed. However, it could have been so much worse. 
and that is why it's known as the Cokeville Miracle and not the Cokeville Massacre, because no one ever found out why those wires were cut. Felicitas Sanchez Agulian Felicitas Sanchez Agulian was born in Cerro Azul, Veracruz in Mexico. Her mother was an uncaring woman who showed no affection towards her daughter, and Felicitas grew up knowing her mother didn't love her. Her troubled upbringing contributed to her psychopathic personality and aversion to maternal feelings. As a child, she started displaying unnatural behaviours and took pleasure in poisoning street dogs. However, despite having no compassion for anyone or anything, as an adult she trained to be a nurse and midwife. She also married a local man called Carlos Conde. Together the couple had twin girls, and although Carlos doted on his daughters, his wife wanted nothing to do with them, and suggested to him that they give them up for adoption. He reluctantly agreed, but after they left, he changed his mind and wanted his girls back. However, Felicitas, who had arranged the adoption, refused to tell her husband where their daughters were, and this eventually led to the couple's divorce in 1910. After the divorce, Felicitas moved to Mexico City, where she lived in an apartment building on Salamanca Street, Colonial Roma. She began to attend births and illegally perform abortions. She also started to trade in illegal adoptions and was arrested twice for practicing unlawful adoption and baby farming. As with many other baby farmers worldwide, Felicitas would take money from the newborn's mother, promising to use the funds to care for the child until they could be found an adopted home. The truth was, she would sell those as quickly as possible, and if she did not sell the child within a few days, then she would murder it. Felicitas then dismembered the bodies and incinerated them in the large furnace she had installed for that purpose. In other cases, she would flush the body parts down the toilet. On April 8, 1941, human remains were discovered near her home, and three days later, she was arrested, along with two accomplices, her second husband, Roberto, and a plumber called Salvador Martinez. On July 16, 1941, before she could be tried for her crimes, Felicitas committed suicide. The daughter she had with Roberto was placed in state care after her father was also convicted for involvement in the murders. It's estimated that Felicitas murdered as many as 100 children, aged from newborn to three years old. Typically, she would poison or strangle them, and horrifically, sometimes she would dismember a child while they were still alive. It's no surprise that various newspapers named her the female ripper of colonial Roma and the human crusher of little angels. World War II Suicide Cliff Ladaran Banaduro is a cliff above Marpi Point Field on Saipan, the largest of the northern Mariana Islands in the Western Pacific. In 1919, Japan was awarded control of the island as part of its mandated territory of the South Seas Mandate, and soon after many Japanese families settled there. However, towards the end of World War II, the US planned to take the territory, and on June 15, 1944, 8,000 US Marines landed on the island, and the Battle of Saipan began. The naval bombardment had started two days earlier, and had already weakened the Japanese defences. But despite the Japanese soldiers being bombarded from all sides, their resistance was incredible. 
No amount of Shalin could shake their resolve. The fighting was brutal, with many casualties on both sides. In desperation, some Japanese troops and civilians took cover in ravines, cliffs, and caves, and used them to ambush the US Marines, often with devastating consequences. In response, the Marines cleared out the caves with flamethrowers, often unaware that both civilians and troops were in them. The land, sea, and air battle was relentless, and after a few weeks, it was evident that the Japanese had lost their fight. The Americans had corralled the remaining Japanese forces and civilians into the northern tip of the island, but still, they refused to surrender. They had got word from Emperor Hirohito that all Japanese citizens, soldiers, and civilians left on Saipan were to commit suicide rather than surrender to the Americans. This was commonplace for the Japanese during war, with their adage being, do not live in shame as a prisoner, die and leave no ignominious crime behind you. In response to the message, their general ordered the largest Banzai charge of the entire war. On July 7th, 1944, all the remaining Japanese troops, including those who were injured, along with a number of civilians, charged at the American army forces in a desperate last-ditch attempt to defeat them. The battle lasted 15 hours, and almost all of the Japanese troops were killed, along with hundreds of American soldiers. The American troops were battle-weary after a month of brutal fighting, and thought their ordeal was finally over. However, sadly, some of the worst horrors they would witness were yet to come. The Imperial Japanese Army had spread terrifying propaganda about what would happen to Japanese civilians, should they fall into American hands. According to them, they would expect to be raped, tortured to death, or even cannibalized by the savage enemy. The fear of this propaganda, and knowing their island was now captured, resulted in hundreds of Japanese citizens to edge towards Marpai Point, where entire families leapt to their deaths. Some parents slit their children's throats before throwing them over the edge and followed them to their demise. Worse still, groups huddled together with a grenade in the middle blowing themselves up after pulling the pin. Others chose to simply walk into the ocean until the waves engulfed them. In a desperate attempt to stop the senseless deaths, American troops called on already captured Japanese civilians to shout over loudspeakers to reassure their compatriots that they would be treated well if they surrendered. Some chose to surrender after hearing this, but others remained stubbornly loyal in their passionate commitment to their emperor and took their lives, and the lives of their families anyway. There is no official count of how many civilians took their own lives at the end of the Battle of Saipan, but estimates usually range between 800 and 1,000. The incident was one of the many great tragedies of a war that was marked by mass deaths of combatants and non-combatants alike. Today, the Okinawa Peace Memorial is located below the base of the cliff, where so many died, and the site has become a place that Japanese visit on a pilgrimage to console the souls of the dead. Whiskey Air Jameson Irish Whiskey is by far the best-selling Irish whiskey in the world. It was founded back in 1780 by a Scottish-born John Jameson, and through the years the company has passed through the generations of the Jameson family. However, James S. Jameson, the great-great-grandson of John, brought shame on the family when he used his power and privilege to do the unspeakable and get away with it. In the late 1800s, James S. Jameson 
was the heir apparent to the family fortune, and like many rich people of the era, James used his considerable wealth to travel the world. He was an adventurous type, and would often tag along on expeditions of more accomplished explorers. In 1888, he joined the Emin Pasha Relief Expedition, led by renowned explorer Henry Morton Stanley, across Central Africa. The expedition was to take supplies to Emin Pasha, the leader of an Ottoman province in Sudan that was cut off by a revolt. However, in reality, it had a dual purpose, to occupy more land for the Belgian Free State Colony in the Congo. James was in command of the rear column of the expedition at Ribakiba, a trading post deep in the Congo, known for its cannibal population. When, for some bizarre reason, he mentioned to Tipu Tip, a slave trader and local fixer, that he had an interest in witnessing cannibalism firsthand. Tipu Tip then acquired a ten-year-old slave girl, for which James paid six handkerchiefs for, and talked to the chiefs of the village. The chiefs then paraded the girl, telling the villagers that she was a present from a white man who wished to see her eaten. The poor girl was then tied to a tree, whilst the natives sharpened their knives, before one of them stabbed her twice in the belly. Three men ran forward and began to cut up the girl's body, finally cutting off her head. Each man then took a piece away to the river to wash it and eat it, leaving not a particle behind. The extraordinary story was later recounted by the exhibition Sudanese translator Asad Farhan in an affidavit that was later published by the New York Times. In fact, in Jameson's own diary, he wrote of the incident, claiming the girl never screamed throughout the ordeal. She never uttered a sound or struggled. After the incident, James also made rough sketches of the horrible scenes and later finished them with watercolors. In his diary, he wrote, when I went home, I tried to make some small sketches of the scene while it was still fresh in my memory. After the New York Times article was published, James and his wife tried to play down the incident, saying he went along with it because he believed it to be a joke and could not imagine that the villagers would actually kill and eat a child, even though he knew they were cannibals. Sadly, it is likely the account is true, although varying accounts of the incident do exist. However, James Jameson never faced justice. He died shortly after the accusations in 1888, during a fever he had contracted during the trip. The Jameson family, with the help of the Belgian government, were able to hush up the atrocity, and to this very day, no one knows the real truth, but the hideous incident still hangs over the family legacy. So that's it for five real-life horror stories. Thank you for watching, and as always, We'll see you in the next one.